0: Hello there. You are listening to Program to Chill, a show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica with your host, Jimmy Falun Gong. This is episode three, Sullivan and Cromwell part three, or German war bonds are a good investment, right? So today I'm recording from number 23, Herengasse in Vern, Switzerland. Today we're going to be talking about Sullivan and Cromwell uh, from before World War I into the 1930s. Let's get started. So when you read a U.S. history textbook about the Versailles Treaty signed after World War I and or the buildup of tensions leading to World War II, you'll generally read something like, European leaders were not interested in a just peace. They were interested in retribution. Germany was to admit guilt for the war and pay unlimited reparations. And then, if your textbook is particularly demented, you might read something about banning the German military, handing over territories like the Alsace and Lorraine, Germany forced to lose their colonies, and uh, usually there's something about hyperinflation in there. That's all true, but there's a lot more to the story. As we, as we as we are going to see, the people most insistent on punitive reparations were the ones profiting from it, and the blowback would be catastrophic. Let's get into it. So, when we left off from episode two, uh, we didn't talk about what Alan Dulles was doing during World War I. Alan Dulles had joined the civil service and... He was transferred to Bern, Switzerland, the capital. Due to its neutrality, Switzerland drew in all the exiles, agents and spies, and revolutionaries for all of Europe. When Alan Dulles got to Switzerland, he asked his new boss what his responsibilities would be. His boss said, I guess the best thing for you to do is to take charge of intelligence. Keep your eyes open, this place is swarming with spies, and write me a good weekly report. So Alan Dulles, at 25 years old, became a spymaster. He would meet with Serbian, Croatian, Montenegrin, Albanian, Ukrainian, Lithuanian, Czech, Bulgarian, Polish, Romanian, Hungarian, German, and Russian plotters. He worked from the Bellevue Palace Hotel and began delivering a steady stream of intelligence. He did not choose to hide his identity and would later say to lower down spies in the CIA. Never try to conceal what cannot or need not be concealed. And I think that's profound, at least in the realm of uh, spycraft. Regarding the work that he accomplished in this time, his superiors wrote in a commendation. The department finds these dispatches of the highest value and considers that they show not only careful labor and preparation, but also exceptional intelligence in the drawing of conclusions. Alan Dulles didn't work too hard, though, and he spent his time with uh, expatriate Americans who played a lot of tennis, golf, hiking attending balls, attending formal dinners, and jazz concerts. When tennis balls became hard to find due to the war, he delighted his friends by arranging for John Foster Dulles through their mutual friends in the State Department to send him a dozen tennis balls in each week's diplomatic pouch. He got into some more interesting events, In one letter home, Allen reported that his life as a secret agent was full of unmentionable happenings and incidents of more than usual interest. Years later, we found out uh, two of them. Uh, Here's a quote, an extended quote from the book A Law Unto Itself. The quote reads, Allen was preparing for a date on Friday afternoon. According to one version, he was meeting two blonde and spectacularly buxom twin Swiss sisters who had agreed to a weekend rendezvous at a country inn when he received a telephone call from a Russian exile who said that he had an urgent message to deliver to the United States and insisted they meet that night. With his mind focused on the forthcoming weekend, Allen brushed him off. Years afterward, he learned that the caller was Lenin and that the reason Lenin never called back was that the very next day he boarded a sealed train to St. Petersburg and set off to change the course of history. Here, the first chance, if in fact it was a chance, to start talking to the communist leaders was lost Allen later admitted. You heard it here first on Program to Chill. The U.S. government lost its chance to communicate with the leaders of the USSR, and who knows, possibly may have even prevented Lenin from going and or changing the revolution because Alan Dulles was having a threesome in Switzerland. Alan Dulles also helped the British murder a Czech woman. Here's another quote from the same book. Around the same time, Allen was informed by British officers that a young Czech woman he was dating who worked with him at the American legation and had access to his code room was passing information to Austrian agents. They had decided that she must be liquidated and he understood it as a necessity of wartime counter-espionage. One night, he took her to dinner and then, instead of squiring her home, delivered her to two British agents who were waiting in front of a 14th century church. She was never heard from again. So we can see that Alan Dulles was involved in some real cloak-and-dagger activity in Switzerland. Let's switch topics here, though. Let's talk about Cuba. Cuba. Now, we get to address one of the earliest attempts that Sullivan and Cromwell had in asserting their interests overseas. So, a pro-American regime in Cuba, led by the Conservative Party, was seeking to hold power after losing an election, and the followers of the victorious liberals rose up in protest. Violence threatened the interests of 13 Sullivan and Cromwell clients, owners of sugar mills, railways, and mines, who had $170 million, the equivalent of over $3 billion in today's money, invested in Cuba. They turned to the firm for protection. John Foster Dulles took the case and traveled immediately to Washington. The next morning, he had breakfast with Uncle Bert. By his own account, he suggested that the Navy Department send two fast destroyers, one for the northern coast and one for the southern coast, of the portion of Cuba controlled by the revolutionaries. Lansing agreed, and the warships were dispatched that afternoon. Marines landed and sp- spread into the countryside to repress protests, beginning what would be a five-year occupation. The liberals resisted, or realized the futility of resistance and called off their uprising. This was the first foreign intervention in which John Foster Dulles played a role. It showed him how easy it can be for a rich and powerful country, guided by the wishes of its wealthiest corporations, to impose its will on a poor and weak country. So we see that because Sullivan and Cromwell had financial interests in Cuba, and Sullivan and Cromwell had an uncle who was Secretary of State, Cuba got invaded and occupied for five years. We're definitely going to revisit Cuba, even within the context of this Sullivan and Cromwell series, and probably in other episodes in the future. Let's talk about John Foster Dulles after World War I. So, after World War I, as many of you know, the European powers held the Paris Peace Conference. John Foster Dulles was working for the War Trade Board, but when the war ended, he was sent to the Paris Conference to work with the reparations committee for which he became counsel. John Foster Dulles got to Paris via the ocean liner the George Washington and he was traveling with Bernard Baruch and also the assistant secretary of the navy and Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the four of them played bridge together along the way. Alan Dulles made his way to the Paris Peace Conference as well. He arrived from Switzerland, attending for the Boundary Commission, which was to draw new borders in Europe. Other notable people in attendance at this conference was John Maynard Keynes, who would soon begin revolutionizing economic theory, and Jean Monnet, one of the visionaries who, a generation later, would lay the foundation for what became the European Union. Keynes, of course, quit the conference in the treaty because of its punitive provisions against Germany. History has proved that Keynes was completely correct about this. Keynes wrote a book called The Economic Consequences of the Peace, which warned that the treaty's reparations section in particular, which John Foster Dulles and Bernard Baruch wrote, uh, that this section about reparations, exposed Europe to the menace of inflationism. I should introduce Bernard Baruch, by the way. He was an American financier and, during World War I, was the head of the War Industries Board, so he was obviously a crucial member of the Paris Peace Conference. So, Bernard Baruch was deeply disturbed by the runaway success of Keynes's book, because it naturally attacked positions that he authored. So he decided to author a book called The Making of the Reparation and Economic Sections of the Treaty. And it was to directly address and argue with John Maynard Keynes. However, he hired John Foster Dulles to write the vast majority of the book for $10,000, which would be something roughly like $154,000 today. This book uh, argued that the reparations clauses were, quote, vital to the interest of the American people and even more vital to world stability. Again, history has shown that Keynes was correct and that Baruch and John Foster Dulles were incorrect. Now let's talk about... Uh, Alan Dulles, and specifically what he was getting up to in Paris at the time. When he went to Paris for the conferences, uh, he loved to go to a brothel called Les Sphinx. I have an extended quote about the brothel from the Stephen Kinzer book, The Brothers, and I read, Le Sphinx was an elegant brothel in Montparnasse, where the air was redolent of rose perfume, lush fabrics covered the walls, and nude women sat at an elaborate Art Deco bar. It was one of several lavish houses that became legendary in Paris and far beyond during the 1920s. They attracted an array of sensualists, among them the writers Laurence Durrell, Ernest Hemingway, Marcel Proust, and Henry Miller as well as film stars including Humphrey Bogart, Cary Grant, and Marlene Dietrich, as well as artists like Pablo Picasso and Alberto Giacometti, and even the Prince of Wales, later King Edward VIII. All pursued what one chronicler of the age called an art of living fueled by desire and eccentricity in a world where money and class put moral judgments in abeyance. Another interesting synchronicity was that Ho Chi Minh was actually in Paris at the same time as the conferences. While he was there, he wrote a pamphlet demanding for Vietnam, the sacred rights of all people for self-determination. He had several thousand copies printed, and when the pamphlets reached Saigon, they even set off riots. Ho Chi Minh carried one to the Hotel Creon, where he hoped to present it to President Wilson. Even renting a suit for the occasion, he wasn't able to see the president, but received a note acknowledging its receipt. Although the French authorities were looking for him, it is unlikely that the Dulles brothers or any American delegates were aware of his existence. Ho Chi Minh, of course, later went to the USSR, China and back to Vietnam, ultimately driving out the French and eventually the Americans from Indochina. Was this yet another chance to make contact with a future communist leader squandered, perhaps because Alan Dulles was busy on sexual escapades? You decide. So let's talk about what John Foster Dulles got up to in post-war Europe. John Foster Dulles got to travel all over Europe, which his fellow law partners at Sullivan and Cromwell resented because they were stuck working 18-hour days and weekends executing all the deals that he would be brokering. There's a quote here, for everyone else, even a partnership was no guarantee of being above the drudgery of ordinary work, but for Dulles, his partnership was the confirmation that he would never have to look at routine again. John Foster Dulles bragged about a luxurious business dinner that he threw, and it does seem quaint now, but it was an extremely pricey business dinner at the time. He bragged about spending $110 for a business dinner, which would be something like $3,000 today. I guess that was just downright hedonistic at the time. So, as he traveled around Europe, one of his first stops for Sullivan and Cromwell was to travel to Frankfurt to broker a deal for copper. He also traveled to the Ruhr region, which was an important area for industry and was particularly volatile because of the Versailles Treaty conditions. For instance, the French invaded it in 1923. While he was there, he had the chance to witness the Ruhr Uprising, which is also known as the March Uprising, which was a left-wing uprising that popped off when a call went out for a general strike issued by the German Social Democrat government, uh, which was itself a response to the right-wing push of 1920. We are definitely going to revisit the push in an episode coming up. Another passage from the book A Law Unto Itself reads, Dulles pushed through the hordes of hungry people waiting for food rations to explain to a guard the importance of his mission. The guard used a rifle to poke his way through the crowd. The sight was really pathetic, Dulles recounted, looking at this band of what he called uneducated workmen, chiefly Jews, I should say, looking as one pictures Trotsky unshaven for days, dirty and I imagine not having gotten much sleep since they started to govern, That was a quote from John Foster Dulles describing the scruffy revolutionaries that he witnessed firsthand during the Ruhr uprising. Seeing the Ruhr uprising did not happen to change John Foster Dulles' opinion of Germany or its stability, or, say, perhaps the wisdom of investing in Germany. So, in 1923, some of the biggest industrialists in Germany, in the Ruhr region, were arrested for refusing to send coal to France, as mandated by the Versailles Treaty. They hired John Foster Dulles to defend them in court. Dulles was useful to them because he was able to publicize their predicament back home and abroad. He met his potential clients in the elegant executive quarters adjacent to the Krupp Steelworks, which was known as the Krupp Private Hotel in Essen. Dulles conducted a private round of negotiations among the Germans, French, and Belgians to try to resolve the impasse of the Ruhr occupation. John Foster Dulles devised the strongly pro-German solution of paying reparations with a tax on beer, wine, and tobacco, instead of delivering the valuable coal to the French. This was not accepted, but it did endear him to the German industrialists. So, let's talk about German debt. The Dawes plan was a plan that came after the Versailles Treaty. The Dawes plan ended the Allied occupation of Europe and provided for a staggered payment plan for Germany's payment of war reparations. The diplomat responsible for it, Charles Dawes, even won the Nobel Peace Prize, which is probably one of the more ironic Nobel Peace Prizes out there. John Maynard Keynes had recommended that the United States participate in rebuilding Germany through granting of loans, but the Dawes Plan relied far too much on private loans rather than on Keynes' idea of direct government aid and direct lending. For what it's worth, this is much closer to the Marshall Plan, which did in fact work because it did not rely on private loans in rebuilding Europe. That's one of several reasons why it succeeded, along with the fact that it didn't try to punish the Axis countries as well as a host of other factors. The Dawes Plan initiated an era of German prosperity based on American lending, which was a disastrous formula which Sullivan and Cromwell vigorously promoted. Basically, the United States lent Germany massive sums of money, which Germany almost immediately reneged on, and Sullivan and Cromwell were key boosters of the German debt. We will go into the full detail of that in a future episode. But this was the start, a significant start to an era when Sullivan and Cromwell dominated a major segment of American investments. Banks competed with each other to get the firm, to get the firm, to find them German loans. They were just mad for investing in Germany. Within the first year Americans lent 150 million to Germany which was a sum that worried even the German government After one of his foreign affairs articles had appeared Dulles admitted to a Sullivan and Cromwell partner quote, "In some quarters there is a tendency to criticize my article as representing too much the Wall Street attitude" of wanting to get rid of any sort of restriction with reference to financial matters, That's right, the Wall Street attitude of wanting to get rid of any restriction on financial interests. Truly, that is crazy. Sullivan and Cromwell supervised many, many issuances of German bonds for all sorts of German debt. They came so fast that they were filled with errors. Some prospectuses had not even been proofread, and that was not surprising considering how frantically and frequently they uh, issued these new loans. Other loans were purposefully deceptive. A 1926 Bavarian bond prospectus began with the quote, Bavaria has an excellent financial history. When in fact Bavaria had defaulted on their loans just the year before in 1925 from 1924 to 1931 Sullivan and Cromwell handled 1.15 billion in loans to Germany and Europe as well as 250 million to Latin America and 139 million to Japan with a total of more than 1.5 billion handled by Sullivan and Cromwell and mind you this is valued this is billions valued in 1920s 1930s currency so we will finish the story of German debt owned by US investors sold by Sullivan and Cromwell in an upcoming episode and I promise you it will be quite the payoff Let's switch gears for a minute and check up on Cromwell. He was still alive after all. He lived till 1948, so what was he doing during this time period? Well, for one thing, he continued to give large donations to charity for the blind, which is pretty cool. He also gave tons of money to France to rebuild after World War I. There's a quote here that reads, he donated fruit trees, chickens, and fountains to farmers and villages throughout France. He gave a 100,000 francs to re-establish the lace industry in Valenciennes, a district near Belgium which was completely destroyed by the German advance on Paris. When one newspaper man, using Cromwell's secretaries as interpreters, asked why he was so generous, he answered, Because it is France, does one know why one loves one woman above all others? Well, France is like a woman I admire and cherish. Her serenity is never indifferent, and her grace is never fatuous. Her pride is never haughty. I would like her to be happy after having paid so dearly for her honor. That's right. France is never haughty. If there's one thing I know about France it's never haughty. Also, let's keep in mind that Cromwell stated that he was generous to France because he loved the country like a woman and showered gifts upon her. Let's keep that in mind when we go into the next topic. Also, as an aside, Cromwell at this point in his life was drinking a pint of champagne every single day. Just a little bit of color there for you. Cromwell was still doing business with robber barons. He made a cool $1 million handling the litigation over the estate of the robber baron Jay Gould uh, on behalf of his daughter, Anna Gould. Basically, he was hired by Anna Gould to stop her brother from bankrupting the $93 million estate, and he won for her a $40 million judgment. After that judgment, Cromwell became close to the Gould family. Here's a quote from Anna Gould's daughter, Violet Peluski, who is the daughter of Anna Gould and Elie de Talleyrand-Perdigord, <laughs> I can't do French, who was the Duke of Sagon. Here's the quote. Cromwell soon became part of the Gould household because my mother had complete confidence in him. She trusted him, and she didn't trust very many people. But I don't know if my father liked it too much, she said of Cromwell's habit of slapping her father on the back with the greeting, Hi, Duke! She remembered Cromwell as a charming old man who arrived promptly for Sunday lunch and sat with her, a five-year-old girl. He uncurled her hair and handed her red leather gift boxes from Cartier. He covered me with jewels, she said. Even to a small girl, he brought precious jewels, bracelets, necklaces, all kinds, which he picked out himself. They were very well chosen. Now, I promise you, dear listeners, when I set out to do a series of episodes on Sullivan and Cromwell, I was not anticipating getting into pedophile territory, but here we are. To be sure, this is not conclusive evidence. But let's look at the evidence we do have. So we have Cromwell inserting himself into the family, taking liberties with addressing Violet's father, uncurling a little girl's hair, and giving her multiple boxes of expensive jewelry from Cartier. You know, the normal thing that you do, giving more than one gift of expensive jewelry to little girls. Also, for what it's worth, there are multiple accounts of Jeffrey Epstein and Jelaine Maxwell giving jewelry to girls they were grooming, as a side note. But, other than that, Cromwell also hosted a visit to America for the Queen of Romania, one of the most beautiful women in the world. That's a little bit of editorializing on the part of the book A Law Unto Itself. And the Queen of Romania came to launch a successful Romanian debt issue in October of 1926. Uh, For the occasion, they held a ball at the Waldorf Hotel. And there's a quote here that reads, After the ball, which was fully covered in the society columns, Cromwell escorted the Queen, with whom he had a purported romance, on a cross-country tour, in a seven-car private train donated by the railroads. It was not that Cromwell sold Romania to the Americans so much as he sold himself to the Queen. Which, I mean, I guess you could say Cromwell was always on the grind. So, what happened to Alan Dulles after World War I? Alan Dulles got stuck in an unsatisfactory position in the State Department. Uh, Alan Dulles and his wife, Clover, spent their first year of marriage living together in Turkey in a two-story house overlooking the Bosphorus. He was promoted, and then they settled in Washington, D.C., as chief of the State Department's Division of Near Eastern Affairs. Over the next four years, he shuttled be- between Washington and the Middle East, cultivating figures like King Faisal of Iraq King Abdullah of Transjordan, Kemal Adaturk of Turkey, and even Lawrence of Arabia, who he met at the Paris Peace Conference. Apart from making connections, Alan Dulles learned a new form of commercial diplomacy since the State Department was beginning to promote American oil interests in the region, especially those of Standard Oil, owned by the Rockefeller family. At this time, the world's navies were converting from coal power to oil-powered warships, which was marking the beginning of the Petroleum Age. Alan Dulles ensured that the United States won its share of the access to the resource that would shape the unfolding century. Somehow, though, Alan Dulles still managed to get depressed and call this period of time the Slough of my Despond, which is just the most (laughs) poet-talk... I can imagine, calling a time where you're not slightly professionally fulfilled, the slough of my despond, which I resonate with on some real levels. So, let's talk about Sullivan and Cromwell's German office. In 1930, in Berlin, Alan Dulles arranged for his brother to meet Halmar Schott, who was a financier, economist, and was eventually tried as a war criminal in Nuremberg. Schott was fluent in English, but was an arch-German patriot. He was more of a liberal, center-right. He founded the German Democratic Party in 1920 before ultimately supporting Hitler in 1931. John Foster Dulles said, quote, of all, the, of all that I met in Berlin, Dr. Schott alone looked forward with hope to the future and felt it worthwhile to do something, to try to save something out of the wreckage which everyone else felt was permanent. Dulles had a lot in common with the tall ramrod erect economist who wore a high stiff collar that squeezed his throat and made his crew cut head look as if it were set on a pedestal. We will definitely, definitely talk about Dr. Schott in future episodes. So to handle its accelerating volume of European work, Sullivan & Cromwell started a firm in Berlin. The firm, still under the Sullivan & Cromwell umbrella, was called Albert & Westrick. It's actually worth talking about one of the two partners, Heinrich Albert. So Heinrich Albert was actually a German spy in the United States before it entered the war, and he spent his time buying up industrial ceramics to cripple the United States chemical industry. He was in New York City when his attache case, which he accidentally left on a New York subway, revealed subversive activities like smuggling rubber to Germany and coffee sacks and raising money from émigré Germans here's a quote, to create an army of hyphenated voters to wage political warfare against the government. Albert was deported amid loud objections to what the New York Times called impudent activities. After the war, he was German Secretary of State and a key means of access to major German borrowers. So we see that it doesn't really matter to Sullivan and Cromwell if a German spies on the United States. In fact, that's probably a signifier for them that the person has connections that they should try to leverage. We will definitely return to the matter of the Sullivan and Cromwell law firm in Berlin in an upcoming episode. So let's draw some conclusions here. What can we learn from this episode? For one thing, Alan Dulles was placed in a spymaster position of power because of his family connections, and he immediately got up to some shady personal and professional actions because of it, like sexual escapades, having spies killed, and missing the boat on dealing with Lenin. Then we saw that Sullivan and Cromwell leveraged their power to intervene in Cuba because of their financial holdings and thereby undermining Cuban democracy. Over future episodes, we're going to tease out the impact of U.S. imperialism, but as we'll see, there are ripples upon ripples of blowback that inevitably occur whenever any actions like this are taken for short-term profit. And then we got to see Baruch and John Foster Dulles writing certain provisos into the Versailles Treaty, Particularly, we see that they were very interested in the punitive debt provisions, which were almost tailor-made to ruin Germany. It becomes much more nefarious to think about that when we realize that they actually began to peddle those same German debts to U.S. investors, and we will see what happens in future episodes. Then we see that John Foster Dulles saw the Ruhr uprising and still thought Germany was a great investment, or so he would tell investors. And we also see John Foster Dulles becoming a pro at courting German industrialists, all themes that we'll take up at a later date. I think we can speculate safely that Cromwell, at a minimum, had an inappropriately close relationship with a five-year-old, the nature of which is open to speculation. I'm not one to throw around the term pedophile loosely, but you gotta admit, it's pretty weird to give a five-year-old multiple gifts of expensive jewelry, right? I mean, maybe one might make sense in the context, but that and the uncurling of the hair, I'm, I'm just saying, I'm just saying. Then we got to see Alan Dulles making tons of connections to top Middle Eastern leaders, which we see him cash in in the future. So in conclusion, I just want to underscore that these were, without a doubt, some of the most powerful men on the planet at the time. And I want us to remember that when we see what ends up happening. We'll see, we're seeing now the actions that they're taking, and then we will see what they harvest. We're in the sowing phase right now with these guys, but I promise we will get to the reaping. Spoiler alert, it's really bad. All right, so I want to thank you for listening. If you like the show today, just show it to a friend, recommend it, like the podcast, all these things. I'm trying to get it all up on every platform, make it easy for people to listen to get the RSS feed going, all of that stuff. So you should be seeing some of that soon. And I actually need to head out. I'm on my way to the Valk Military Hospital for some treatment next week. Uh, So I will catch up with you guys soon. Thank you for listening. God bless.